Good morning, Harmony. I apologize for the heat. Uh, we're having some AC issues. Thankfully, everybody believes that if you come to church on Easter, you don't need to come the following week, so we're not uh, dying in here with all the body warmth. And you can tell all the people who missed this week I said that. All right. I'll give them a hard time next week when they're back, hopefully. Uh, we have been in a series for the last... Oh, there you go. Look at that. That's sermon. <laughs> oh, those of you who've been here a while, you know my sermon is not going to be that brief. <laughs> uh, we have been in a series for the last um, 15 weeks or so, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Justin, can you help me find the right slide there? And um, we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians this concept of the gospel-colored glasses. And what we mean by that is, is when you become a Christian, really through biblical Christianity, what Christ describes, what we're talking about as Christians is, is that everything in our lives is encompassed by the gospel and is encompassed by Jesus Christ. So many of us, when we say we're Christians or we run into people who say they're Christians, what we run into is we run into people who have had this one little piece of their life that maybe they felt a gap. Maybe they felt a need. Maybe they felt something was longing. And as they encountered Christ, they felt, you know what, I think he's a great solution to this one singular problem. And so they come to Christ normally with a very specific thing that they want to give to him. Maybe it's the hope that Christ and his philosophies and his teachings will help their marriage. Maybe it's that it will help them with their anxiety. Maybe it will help them with parenting. Maybe it will help them with you fill in the blank. And they want to give that one select little piece to him. And really what we discussed in the book of 1 Corinthians is that Paul has come to these people and he said, guys, that is not how it works. Christianity is not a relationship where you have God as your guidance counselor or your advisor that you go to in moments of need. The relationship that God describes in the Bible is one in which he so passionately loved you, so passionately cared for you, that he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son to come to this earth, to live with us, to teach us, to guide us, to love us, to ultimately die for us to give us a chance at a new life. And what that new life is, is not you and I being buddies with Jesus. What that new life is, is you and I seeing that glorious truth and realizing from this moment on, I am the servant of Christ. I give to Him all I have and all I am, and I follow Him all the days of my life. And what that means for us is now as Christians, there's not just this one portion of our lives that's given to Him. No, we see everything, everything through the lenses of the gospel. All aspects of our lives are submissive to Christ, His knowledge, His love, and His leadership. That's what real Christianity is about. And so as we've looked through the book of 1 Corinthians, there were three themes that just kept popping up. Three things that this church that Paul had planted was struggling with. And those three things were this. They were a divided church. And so Paul reminded them, guys, I understand you're divided, but here's the reality. You need to be united as Christians in the Word. What brings you and I together as people is not our socioeconomic group, it's not our class, it's not our race, it's not any of those superficial factors. What brings you and I together and centers us 
is the Word of God. It is our belief in that Word of God. It is our obedience to that Word of God. And it is our usage of that Word of God day in and day out in our lives. That's what brings us together. And so Paul looks at him and he says, all these other things that are dividing you, things about style, things about you know what preacher you follow, things about these petty, dumb differences, you've got to let those go and you've got to be centered on the Word. The second thing he told us is, be aware that not only do you know, need to know that you're united in the Word, but you're at war with the culture of the world. Now, this is a big one for Christians today because so many of us want to be hip, cool Christians. We so badly want people who are in the world to see, I get your world. I can stand in both. And, and Paul's point to the people in Corinth is that doesn't work. What the world wants, desires, cherishes, and honors, what the world points you towards, is completely opposite what the kingdom of God points you at. You cannot, as a person, put one foot in each of those, foot, those camps and say, hey, I can live this way, it's going to be great. If you try to do that, you will be a person divided. And you will be a person never fully accomplishing anything in the world or fully accomplishing things in the kingdom. If we are believers, if we are servants of the God Almighty, we have pushed away the culture of the world. We have pushed away those things like money and lust and power that the world tells us to pursue. We've left those behind and we are now marching forward towards the things of the kingdom. The third thing we've talked about is as the church we're always to be growing and serving. One of Paul's great frustrations with the people in Corinth is, is he helped plant that church. He knew these people years ago, but as he's been corresponding to them with letter, he's hearing back and he's going, you guys haven't grown at all. You know, when I was with you, I was feeding you baby food because you were babies in the faith. I hope by now you were eating meat. I would hope by now you were more mature and that you were diving into deeper truths and that you had grown. But I don't even know if you've grown at all. You might have taken a step backwards. And this kind of goes to that mentality that you've seen rise up in the modern church that suggests to us that by being Christians, the moment we become saved, it's done. That the whole game was being saved, getting our, our heaven insurance, and then just ride it out for the rest of your life. Paul's point is, no, that's not how it works at all. Being saved, when you give your life to Christ and you become His servant, that is the beginning of an awesome journey where God will now use you as an instrument of His to build His kingdom and to do awesome and wonderful things. And if that's true, if every day you are in the presence of the Almighty God, who is perfect and loving and all-powerful. Do you know what that will do to you? It will change you. There is no way to be in the presence of God on a day-in and day-out basis and not be changed. And so throughout this book, Paul has been centering on these things. Today we come into the last chapter, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he, he kind of has a bunch of different parting words for them, but I really want to hone in on this passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, he says this, and this is kind of his, his last quotes to the team. 
He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And he really gives them kind of these three things. And these three things should sound familiar to you if you're a regular here at Harmony Baptist Church because there's a verse that we use quite a bit. In 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And really, when we look at these two, it's, it's, it, they match up beautifully well. It's the same three basic concepts that Paul is pointing towards. And I want you to hold to these concepts, because brothers and sisters, I realize when we look at the Bible, right? When we look at this, this massive book, it is possible at times for us to go, I'm confused on what to do. I'm confused on, on how I apply this directly to the situation that I am currently in. But to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, I think that is more work of our enemy making this feel confusing than the reality of God. I think the reality of the scriptures and God's wisdom is it's very concise, it's very simple, and it's very consistent. There's a few things he points to regularly that are the hallmarks of being a Christian. And now listen to me on this. As we go through this, I don't want you for a second thinking what we're saying today is that by being powerful, loving, and self-disciplined that you in any way, shape, or form earn your salvation. Let me make it very clear. You could never do a single thing to earn your salvation. Salvation is not something you and I are capable of ever reaching in our own ability or in our own effort. It is a free gift that Jesus has given us. However, if we truly have that gift in our lives, if we truly cherish that gift, and if we truly have the Spirit of God Almighty living in us, then it does lead us to be different. And three of the consistent things that you see him point to are these concepts of us being watchful or self-disciplined, being powerful and strong, and being loving. And I share that with you, brothers and sisters, because I feel like as Christians, we have lowered the bar so far because we're worried about becoming works-based. We're so worried that people might think we're about earning our salvation that we basically said, there's no standard. I'm not going to judge you for how you live. I'm not going to judge you for how you act. And I'm sorry, that just doesn't ring true. I'm not here to judge your salvation, and none of us should judge each other's salvation. That's not our role. But we should acknowledge that if we are true believers of the Almighty God, if I have the Spirit of the perfect, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing being living in me, how can that not change me? How can that not make me something different? And so I want you to take those three things and I want you to cherish them and use them on a regular basis as kind of a measurement tool. Not to compare yourself to others, but just to look at your own life and go, you know what? If I look at God's Word and I look at what God wants me to do in my life, I should be able to say that I'm self-disciplined. I should be able to say that I'm powerful. I should be able to say that I'm loving. I told you a few weeks ago about my wife's rose bushes in the front yard. And I said, you know, we've got three of them there, and there is one. It is just big and beautiful and gorgeous. 
and there's one that has like three little flowers on it. But you know what's beautiful? I can tell each and every one of those is a rose bush. The same should be true for us when we talk about power, love, and self-discipline. There will be those among us that you can from a mile away look at them and go, oh my goodness. The power that God has put in that person's life is amazing. Or, oh my goodness, they are, the love that shines through them is glorious. Right, so there may be some of us that because of our intimacy with Him, because of our time on this path with Him, because of what God is doing in that moment, maybe we're that rose bush that has 50 buds on it. The point though is you should be a rose bush that has at least one bud. I shouldn't be able to look at you and go, I see no evidence of power. I see no evidence of love. I see zero evidence of self-discipline. That should worry us if that is true. And so let's look at these three things here. We're going to use the terminology that he uses here in 1 Corinthians. Being watchful. And we're going to talk about good examples of what that looks like in our lives. So he starts here at the end of this book and he says, be watchful. What does that mean? If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, Jesus talks about this concept of being watchful, being ready. He says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third watch and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and then sign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will also ask the more. And so Jesus, with his parable of being watchful, what he's saying is, is, you don't know when your master returns. But let's serve in such a way that when he does, he will come back to see us doing the right things. He will come back and he will see us acting in the way that we have been taught, doing the activities we were requested to do, behaving in the right ways. See, the point, brothers and sisters, that he's making here is if you and I are not constantly on guard, 
constantly being aware of the circumstances around us, we will find ourselves pulled away from those things that God wants us to do. It is only with great intention and purpose in our lives and awareness that we keep on task. Brothers and sisters, I always encourage you guys, do not be people who go with the flow. You know that statement? Just go with the flow. Just go with the flow. And I get what it normally means. is like, stop stressing out. As Christians, that's a great thing. We should not be people who are stressed because we all actually should have an amazing amount of peace knowing that all the biggest things the Father's taking care of for us. But when I say don't go with the flow, that means don't be people who Monday through Friday just go wherever the world pulls you. Because the world that you and I live in will never, ever pull you to the throne of God. It will always pull you away. But if you don't believe me, just, just look at how the world has changed in your own lifetime. Think of this, some of the things that are like popular television and music today. And imagine if we would take those things and put them back on the radio or TV in the 50s. You think the Victoria's Secret fashion show that's on CBS would have ever been aired in the 50s? On regular television? Do you know what that would have been treated like? Do you know how people would have responded to that? Today, it was like, yeah, it's television. No biggie. Everywhere we look, we see culture has continually pulled us. And guess what? It never stops. It never stops. As soon as one thing becomes acceptable, culture doesn't go, okay, great, we got them to here, we're good. It goes, okay, well, how do we keep pushing the limit? How do we keep pushing the limit? How do we keep pushing the limit? And the beauty of our enemy is he knows if he does it slowly, you and I almost don't notice. We almost don't notice. I can attest to this with weight gain. Like, I guarantee you, if the results of weight gain were more drastic based on what you did the previous day, you'd probably see healthier people. Like, if you just spent one day working out and you woke up the next day and had a six-pack, you'd probably be like, I'm going to keep working out. This is awesome. And vice versa, if one day you went to you know, McDonald's and ate the double quarter pounder with cheese with the supersized fries and woke up 50 pounds heavier, you'd go, I'm not doing that again. But is that how it works? No, it's just slowly, slowly over time. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. And then one day you're going, honey, what's wrong with our dryer? Why is it shrinking all my clothes? I don't understand this. It snuck up on you. And that's what Christ is saying here. If you and I don't remember that we live behind enemy lines, that we live in a culture that glorifies sin and has no desire for us to ever worship God, then we will slowly and surely see ourselves pulled away from those things that God has asked us to do and do things that are despicable in His eyes. So be on guard. Be watchful. Pay attention. Brothers and sisters, what I learned a long time ago, there's no such thing as little things. There's no such thing as little things. Everything in your life tells a story. Everything in your life reflects your values. Everything in your life, it gets pieced together to tell you something about you. 
I see this all the time when I'm counseling people who are having trouble in their marriages. Very rarely when I see a couple whose marriage is in trouble is it because of one event. Actually, if, if I'm counseling somebody it is one event, I'm very hopeful. Because typically then it's one problem, we can come to a resolution on that, and we've solved the issue. Typically how it actually is, it is the thousands of little things that have happened over long periods of time that have just eroded a relationship. And what's happened is somehow it became the culture of these two people that every time one of these little things would arise, instead of them lovingly solving it, they would just let it stay. And slowly over time, these two people that were once one are now all the way apart. And now the problem becomes is to get them back, we've got thousands of things to discuss. Hundreds of arguments that were never resolved. It's for not being watchful. Not being disciplined about what you let into your life and into your hearts and into your minds. Christ says, even though you don't know when He returns, don't act like the point is just to behave when He shows up. When you don't know when your parents will return, do you know how you guarantee you'll be doing the right thing? You just always do the right thing. Be disciplined. The second thing He says is be strong. He says be strong, and I want to clarify this one the most because I think some of us look at this and go, me, my body is weak and broken. I've never been that person who stands up and gives a big speech or a rousing message. Like, I don't know how to be strong. That's because we're defining that word with what the world has shown us strength to be. When Christ really talks to us about power and strength, he means a power and strength that come from the character that we have. And more so than anything, what that strength is, is the ability of you and I to plant our feet by the river of His truth and not move. No matter what the world says, no matter what the culture says, no matter what anybody else says, we are planted by His truth. And when the winds come and the storms come and the pressure comes, we don't move. We stand firmly planted where He asked us to be. That normally is exactly the kind of power that He asked for. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6 when He's talking about the armor of God? When He's talking about the armor of God, you never tell, read that He tells us to go advance. He never goes and tells us to take territory from Satan. He says, put on the armor of God so you can stand firmly against the schemes of the devil. And the image that you get is not one of us charging out ahead, but us planting ourselves by the kingdom of God, digging in and going, you're not going to take me out. You can throw everything you've got at me, but I ain't bending. One of the beautiful stories that I probably share far too often with you, but it's one of the most beautiful ones to me, is in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we see this display of power that truly comes from the Word of God. It comes from the Spirit of God being in these disciples' hearts. In Acts chapter 4.13, we catch up with Peter and John, the disciples. And we catch up with them at a time that's very important to remember where these guys just have been. But Peter and John were not always brave and courageous. Remember when they came to arrest Christ, what these men did. They ran, they hid, they denied knowing Him. 
but we've already seen them in moments where their lives were potentially on the line and they turned tail and ran. But now that the Spirit of God is in them, we see that these men are becoming something different. We see that there is a new power in their lives. And look what happens. In chapter 4, we're actually going to rewind a little bit. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they had laid their hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard their message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Cephas and John and Alexander, and all were of highly priestly descent. And when they placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made to known all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on what to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old whom the miracle of the healing had been performed. Do you see what happens? Do you see what the power is that Peter and John hold? The power is not that Peter and John took over the kingdom. It's not that they beat everybody up. It's that when the world came crushing in on them and said, stop talking about Christ, stop giving him honor, stop glorifying his name, or we will punish you, Peter and John go, go for it. You cannot silence me. You want me to stand here and obey you over God? No. And that power, that unwillingness to back down, actually put their enemies into the corner. It's not the Sadducees and Pharisees standing there going, we don't know what to do now. We can't deny these men are powerful. They've performed a miracle in front of everybody. We can't tell them to stop doing what God says to do because that would make us look bad. And so all they end up doing is saying, well, you shouldn't do that anymore. Go. 
do nothing. Why? Because they stood with power. And what I want you to see about that is that's the kind of power that each and every one of us should have. It's not that you can beat people up. It's not that you overthrow kingdoms. It's not that you speak in front of everybody. It's that you know what God wants you to do and no one can shake you from that. You hold firm to that. One last one. He tells us to love. And brothers and sisters, the reality of Christianity is it is very simple. It's very simple. All of Christianity can be summed up in Matthew 22, 36-40. All of it. We try to make it complex. We try to make it convoluted. We try to say that it's hard to follow. It is not. It is unbelievably clear what God wants us to do. In Matthew 22, 36-40, they come to Jesus, Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're trying to trick Him. They're trying to get him caught up in his words. They're trying to make him say something dumb. And so they come to him and they ask him a question that they think will stump him. They say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to this. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I've shared this with you before, but that last statement is so profound because when he says all the law and prophets, that is what they called the Bible back then. The law and the prophets. And so what Jesus is saying to this audience is, you've come to ask me some question where you think I'm going to slip up. And what their hope is, is like, imagine you ask somebody, okay, so which is the best of the Ten Commandments? And you go, honor God. Oh, so you think it's fine to murder people. You don't think that's a big deal, huh? So you're just fine with murdering people all day long. You only think it boils down to this one. No matter what Jesus says, they're just going to use all the other commandments to go, so you don't think those are important. Jesus sees through all this and he goes, it's very simple. You love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes, if you really want to challenge me on this, this is what the whole entire Bible is about. And where he's unbelievably, beautifully brilliant is it is true. He's not actually giving us a new verse here. This has been all the way since Deuteronomy that that verse was given to us by God. And I've shared with you before, if you go look at the Old Testament and you look at the laws of God, you'll continually see this. The Ten Commandments, the first four, about loving God. The second six, about loving people. Go to the prophets of the Old Testament and listen to the times where they're getting mad at Israel because they're not doing their duties. Israel is either in trouble because they're not loving God properly or they're not loving people properly. Jesus comes into the New Testament and he gets mad at two groups of people. The kind that either don't acknowledge God and don't give him love or the kind that do that but push other people down. It's not that hard. You love God, you love people. When I say it's not that hard, what I mean it's not that hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Because ultimately what love is, is the joyful sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. That's what love is. And so brothers and sisters, as we put a bow on 1 Corinthians, I think if there's anything I would want you to take, it's that you take that measurement with you. And that you realize that you, you, have the Spirit of God Almighty living in you. 
king of the universe, the one that spoke everything into existence, the one that has always been and always will be, lives in you. And what he says is he has put his spirit there. And it is not a spirit of timidity. It's not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And what that means, brothers and sisters, what that means is those three things should be displayed in us. Every day, wherever we go, whatever we do, people should see that power, they should see that love, and they should see that self-discipline. And I do those things not because I'm trying to earn salvation. I do them because I've already been given salvation. And out of appreciation for this gift I could have never earned, I now strive to live that way each and every day of my life. That's what Paul is calling us to do. I don't know about you, but I can tell you being a person of power, love, and self-discipline, you know what's nice about it? It's fun. It's actually really fun to be a person that goes into the world and isn't whipped around by every whim that someone throws at you. It's nice to be someone who doesn't live in constant fear because you already know the victory has been given to you by God. And it's beautiful to be someone that lives in such a way that you see God is using you as an instrument to change the world. It's not only the right thing to do. It's not only the thing that makes us show God we love Him back. But it's a joyous thing. And I can tell you in my own life, what I've experienced is a kind of addictive. It's like once you've tasted that, once you've experienced that, you go, that's all I want. All I want is that feeling here. To know that I'm displaying what God has put in me. I'm going to ask Sister Maria to come up. Uh, we're going to get prepare ourselves as we're about to take the Lord's Supper. As we take the Lord's Supper, I encourage you as we sing, as we pray, as we prepare, remember what this is. It's not just a wafer and some grape juice. If it was, it wouldn't mean anything. What this is, is us proclaiming that Jesus Christ is our Lord. This is us proclaiming that the Son of God came to earth, died on a cross for our sins, and three days later rose, defeating death and offering us a chance to be part of His kingdom. What a glorious thing that we get to partake in this. And so as we sing and as we pray, I ask you to be with your Father and to be right with Him. If there's any things that you've not asked Him to forgive you for, you lay those at His feet. If there's any other brother or sister in your life who's asked you for forgiveness and you haven't been willing to give it, you make that right. Let's go to the Father and proclaim this message with pure joy and clear hearts. Maria? Let's all stand.
chapter 11 for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we pray over the bread, Lord, remembering that it represents the body of your Son, Jesus Christ. The body, Lord, that was broken by this world and crucified on a cross, not for anything he did, Lord, but for the debt of our sins. We're so thankful, Lord, that he was willing to sacrifice himself to pay a debt we could never pay on our own. And that through that sacrifice, Lord, our sins have been washed away. Father, we love you. We remember your son's gift to us. And in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
chapter 14, verse 22, it says, While they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. As a family, let us eat. It says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Dearly Father, as we pray over this cup, we are so thankful, Lord, that not only did you forgive us of our sins, but that you covered us in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. That, Father, not only was our old life taken away, but a new life in you was given. Father, I pray that each and every day of our lives we will cherish that we get to call you Father. And Father, may we all look forward to that glorious day when we will sit at that table with you in heaven and all the believers of all time to have a great and wonderful fellowship meal. Father, what a joy you've given us to look forward to. Father, I pray that you'll be with this church and that as they walk out these doors today, they will reflect the righteousness and the power and the love and the self-discipline of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. drink. It tells us in the New Testament that after they had eaten the meal, uh, they sang a hymn together. And so as we close the day, we'll close with a, a chorus. And as always, after we leave, I, I wish you that you guys have a great week, that you remember that you carry with you that spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And don't forget you have a mission. And that is to go out in this world and to make disciples that love God, that love people, and follow Jesus. Amen. It's always a blessing to worship with you. Brian? Let's all stand.
I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join us with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Amen. Everybody have a great week. I love you and we'll see you next Sunday.